Hello again, and welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading provider of geodata, from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. In episode 23, we looked at how the insurance industry uses data to respond to catastrophe, getting help to effective businesses when needed, and helping locals to get on with their lives. We saw that catastrophic events will become more common and will impact on more people. How can we prepare for extreme risks like this? That has been the question that Peter Power, Vice Chairman of the Resilience Association, has spent his career tackling. He has helped the UK, Canadian and Australian governments develop strategies for resilience and was a member of the Institute of Public Policy Research's National Security Commission, which produced the report Shared Responsibilities, a National Security Strategy for the UK. He also produced the government's first guide to business continuity, preventing chaos in a crisis. To be able to bounce back from catastrophe, Peter says that organisations must develop a resilience mindset. Many of the characteristics of this mindset, such as agility and adaptability, are easier to find in smaller organisations. In this episode, we'll learn more about this mindset and how larger private businesses and the public sector might adopt it. We'll also find out what would be needed to develop a truly whole-of-society response, as called for in a recent UK House of Lords report, Preparing for Extreme Risks, Building a Resilient Society. Peter, thanks for joining us. Now, could you tell us a little bit about yourself first? If I'm asked to describe myself, I'd like to think of myself really as an innovator, problem solver, a motivator. The key for me is to recognize solutions and share the problem solving. And this involves very much setting attainable targets for success. But the underlying point here is sharing both problem solving and the benefits to doing that. We are, I mean, if you think about it, we are collectively facing an accumulation of threats seldom seen before. So now is the time to act. Something my colleagues in the Resilience Association very much share with me as essential thoughts and essential actions to take now. Let's start with the basics then. How do we prepare for this world of new threats? What is resilience and and how does it differ from business continuity? Let's just take three things that, that make resilience such a fundamental, such an important issue in the 21st century. Now, the first thing goes back to your question and it started this, which was talking about extreme risks. Well, so many risks have, quite frankly, ceased to become extreme. We are living in such a risk rich environment. It is no wonder that the Collins Dictionary word of the year last year was perma crisis. In other words, we are in a constant state of crisis. We are no longer in that 
mythical age where something happened once in a hundred years or once in a thousand years, it's continuous. And that's why we need to have a different approach. Resilience really is a state of mind. Uh, organizational resilience is an outcome, a sort of state of being achieved by an organization rather than a strict discipline or a function or a process, which business continuity tends to be. In other words, resilience is, is a whole of state and is thinking flexibly. It doesn't lend itself to rigid plans. It's much more aligned to crisis management, uh, which, is an, which is a standard I was very much involved in drafting with others a few years ago, where it was much more strategic level, whereas business continuity tends to be operational. Resilience, another key point, is not resistance. Resilience is about anticipating, agility and adaptability. It is conceptual as well as definable. Uh, and quite frankly, in the 21st century, it's vital. We, haven't, we didn't foresee some of the major problems we now have just a few years ago. And a third point, resilience spans entire organizations. Uh, it is very much where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's why we can't just say, well, it sits in so-and-so box. Crises simply don't fit into neat boxes these days. Uh, they quickly spill over to matters of perception, reputation and image. Uh, and that where, that's what I mean about being the whole of the organisation. So can we dive a little bit deeper and, and share with us how you then see the connection between resilience and business continuity? So those differences start to give an answer to, is it business continuity? Some colleagues of mine who I admire greatly say that the beating heart of resilience is business continuity, unquote. Now, if that were strictly true, and you were to draw an, an illustration of resilience, you put a great big circle in the middle, stick in the middle of that circle, business continuity, and everything else flows from it. Exactly the same as doing an, an illustration of business continuity. The better ones are showing what are all the components, which are ill-defined sometimes, more conceptual, as I mentioned a moment ago, and how did they fit in? So risk management, communications, HR, a whole load of things, some of the whole being greater than that of its parts, what I mentioned just now. So I'm afraid I'm not one of those who thinks that the beating heart of resilience is business continuity. Good though business continuity is, for the reason I've just given. If you put it into a diagram, it will be the same as business continuity. Resilience is not the same as business continuity. It is not about um, resistance it's very much about thriving in uncertainty easier done in some sectors than others i can tell you now when you talk like that would you describe yourself as an outlier in this way of thinking or are the masses with you on this i've considered myself over the years to be more of a maverick than a traditionalist some of the things i was very much involved in like the gold silver and bronze command structure which is used across many countries um, very much involved in that as long ago as the mid 80s, uh, which does sound a long, long time ago. Uh, but that in, in its time, that was quite revolutionary. We, we threw away ranks and replaced them with roles. Ooh. And if you or I, in a, in, with a rank hidebound hierarchy, just be told that all that we've strived to do over the last decade has been replaced by the role that's applicable during this crisis, we wouldn't be happy. This is interesting. For me, Many people seem very comfortable when they have a business continuity plan or, or a resilience plan, whatever label we're going to stick on the front of the cover. 
and they've done their job. But you don't see it that way, do you? No, once you get it defined as a plan, well, let's, let's say business continuity. Business continuity management is the right way to express business continuity. One product of business continuity management is the business continuity plan. And it's probably the most important thing that streams out of it. You have to do things like business impact analysis and a whole range of other things. It's a thing you turn to uh, in a crisis because it saves you an awful lot of time because you've already done your research. It tells you which are the, the critical features, what are the important things that you can let go for a couple of days, what are critical to keep going in minutes. And some you might even drop out altogether while you double hat people to help the most important operations. But resilience doesn't lend itself to a strict plan. One reason, because it can become the great tome to beat you over the head with if you're seen not to succeed. We want to see this as something which is all embracing the whole of society and it is uh, and its issue and, and its guidance. But a key part of it, when we look at the, the definitions that we might talk about, foresight, insight, hindsight, and oversight, the hindsight bit is learning from this experience. Right. And that's pretty different. So we're not looking at the blame game at all, but we do want people to be honest, to learn, to adapt, thrive, carry on, because the next crisis is probably coming down the line, but we haven't seen it yet. Do people learn their lessons? Some do, some don't. Uh, when careers are at stake, reputation is at stake, it's a difficult one, but it's a critical component of this if you don't learn the lessons. And that includes near misses. It includes what happened to rival organizations. It includes something that this might have dotted line to you. That's why what they call horizon scanning is critical. You describe four key areas, foresight, insight, hindsight, and oversight. Maybe you could just take us in a little bit more depth through these concepts. Yeah, happily. Um... Uh, there's a British standard on, on all this. Uh, those of you who suffer from insomnia, we might like to read British standard 6.5 travel O. Uh, it's, it's quite a good one. It, it covers an awful lot. And there's also an international standard as well. Foresight. It's searching for the possible opportunities as well as the threats. And again, the difference between business continuity and resilience, because this standard stresses thriving in uncertainty. It stresses looking for opportunities. Ooh. It's not a question of schadenfreude and, and wishing your, wishing ill on all your competitors, but this is also lends itself to a problem because looking for opportunities to thrive doesn't come very easily in the public sector, but it does come very easily in the private sector. The words you're using though, are they real? Does it actually come easy in the private sector? Or is it just a little bit more acceptable, more part of the way of working? It is both easy and part of the way of working. If, if you're risk negative in the private sector, I don't think you're going to be in business very long. Right. Yeah. I ran my own company for 25 years, and we had to look at opportunities in a, in a world of sometimes uncertainties. And you have to predicate what you're doing quite often on a basis of data which you wish you had but didn't, or it's unreliable, or it doesn't even exist but you can't wait for the perfect amount of data before you make a decision. Absolutely. That's the key point. Whereas in other sectors, certainly in the, in the public sector, nobody really wants to come up with, with decisions until they've got a thorough analysis of the data. And as I said just now, in a lot of catastrophes, crises, risks, threats, 
that data is elusive, it might be vague, it might be misleading, or it might not even exist. Yet, decisions have to be taken. Just sticking with the foresight for a second, is there any, any, any currency in the thinking that people who are less comfortable investigating that horizon space that you describe naturally go into the public sector? Um, people who are a little bit more adventurous, more comfortable with risk, would find themselves, well, generally, I know I'm generalising here, into the, the private sector. Or do people just find themselves where they are as a result of other drivers? Probably the latter. I don't think we've got people queuing up to go through a door that says, I don't like risks, therefore I work right. in the private yeah. sector. Or go through a door that says, yeah, we love risks, come this way. Mm. Uh, it is just bound up in a much more philosophical way of how those um, areas work. Right. Uh, but th there is some excellent work. There's, a, there's an orange book, as they call it, of risk management in the public sector. It is the biggest book I've ever seen, actually, in terms of risk. But it is generally risk negative. Avoid the risk. They talk about three lines of defense against risk and so on and so on. But we don't want our people in the public sector to be a little bit too quick on making decisions on um, information which might be elusive. Actually, we don't. But we do want them to make decisions that are timely, that are relevant, and above all, are attainable. Because when we run exercises on these sort of areas, people might get top marks for making a decision in five minutes. Is it attainable? No, well, no marks at all in that case. It's quite a complex one, this, but our whole attitude to risks, I think, has to be revised. And I think quite a bit. I mean, not long ago, this year, the Institute of External Auditors said, and I quote, rethinking resilience is a key theme that underlies a diverse set of risks facing all organizations in 2023. And I think coming from a bunch of external auditors, we must rethink resilience. I think they're right. I really do. But the more we talk about it and the less we have it so rigidly defined, it either is or isn't, is probably not a good idea. I quite like the idea of having a conversation like this in a year's time, actually, uh, because things may change. So that's my whole point right at the beginning by saying it's a state of mind. It's rather powerful when you describe it that way, but it's also, in a sense, a little bit more vague. Human beings rather like to write it down in a formulaic way, don't they? And, and they feel comfortable that that's it, dealt with. But your solution here, this is about a mindset it is a constant issue. It's, it requires constant pressure, constant thinking, and, well, constant rethinking. Yeah, uh, in a, yes, by and large, but I think um, you, people have to understand in, the, in this uh, peculiar world we, we, now, we now live in, you're going to have to make decisions on a raft of uncertainty. Some of the bedrock, some of the stability, some of the, the waymarks we rely on are increasingly becoming vague, wobbly, or don't even exist. So when we look at the other three, apart from foresight, the insight, hindsight, and oversight, the insight is generating that situational awareness. And situational awareness is exactly what it just says. Being aware of what's happening, not just saying, oh God, this isn't gonna happen, or I'm gonna retire in a couple of weeks and get my fat pension. I just hope it doesn't happen while I'm in the top chair. Situational awareness is very broad.
It is like looking at a radar screen. And as it goes round and round and round, lots of little blips on it for various risks and threats and so on. But where we see what would otherwise be an inconsequential risk, but lined up with probably a dozen others, it then becomes a big risk. In other words, it's the, it's the ingredients of a risk are not just one glitch. In the just-in-time way that we run our organizations now, it is accumulation of risks which on their own might not be significant. But horizon scanning and situational awareness should point to saying, hey, we've got a couple of things here, not least of which could really screw our supply chain. There are so many issues there. But the hindsight, we've already talked about learning from experience. And I think the last one is, is very relevant. It's about oversight. It's about building a framework of governments and accountability. And a lot of this does fall under ESG and certainly the G of governance in that. Uh, so I see this very much as a board responsibility. And yet again, that distinguishes it from business continuity, which is often seen as an operational matter. But this isn't. This is much broader. Is our education system and training enlightening our leaders of tomorrow to embrace this approach or not? Or indeed, are they already there? I think with too many people, they're more engaged in coming up with mechanisms for the avoidance of responsibility. Uh, and that's something we have to shy away from. The reason being that people can get a, can suffer a second crisis because in some sort of court of law, in some sort of investigation, it was found that what you did at that time actually wasn't good enough, which is why we talk about something called defensible decisions in all of this. You have to be able to, because there's so many cases of individuals being prosecuted and having to pay huge fines because in, in, in the stillness of a courtroom years later, when the air isn't full of fog and uncertainty, clever barristers have got to over a barrel uh, because it doesn't, didn't look like it did the right thing. So that's why when we in this strays into crisis management now, of course, the accountability and the governance, simple things like doing recording everything that happened and that you can ultimately say would anybody in this jury act any differently had they known only what we knew on that date in 2023 that can be your get out of jail free card but where you're in the business of avoiding blame or, or, or pushing blame somewhere else i should say and not standing up and demonstrating true government's true leadership uh, you've got an exposure so words like defensible decision making we never even talked about last year, as far as I remember, or we use different language. Now it's emerging as a really top issue. Do those concepts, resilience, situational awareness and defensible decision making, make good bedfellows? Or, or, or is there a tension there? Can that set of concepts work together? It should do if the right level of leadership and management, certainly leadership, is expressed from the top. It's worth taking a little leaf out of the military doctrine where our army, our military as a whole, will push down decision-making to the lowest possible level. In Russia, no chance. Decision-making is at the top. Nobody wants to tell the person at the top anything other than good news. And we can see that happening in Europe now. Whereas if we have the openness, the constructiveness, sharing, the quote, whole of society approach, it's much more healthy. Uh, but I like the idea that you could have, something's defined as this, but no plans work once you have contact with the enemy. Um, and so if, if somebody 
a bit lower down the chain says, hey, it's a better way of doing this. It's a quicker way of doing this. That person should be thanked. And if ultimately it turns out that wasn't the best idea, they should not be castigated. We should have a risk positive approach. Is this what you mean by adaptive capacity? Yes, it is. Yes. It is that, that inherent capacity, that adaptive capacity, that capacity uh, to quickly adapt to emerging situations that would otherwise destabilize organizations or send them spinning out of space never to recover. So that, that capacity to adapt is, has to be quick. We talk about quick time and slow time sometimes. A slow time situation is where you have time to make decisions and you, and you, 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 you know how you might work, but the clock isn't ticking quite so much. A quick time decision, self-evidently, eponymously, is where decisions have to be made in minutes rather than days. Now, know your team in advance and you can do it. Don't know your team in advance and you'd struggle. Do you have any good examples here that you're allowed to share? Yes, there, there are some, and I'm not sure I can share them. Um, we, 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 we can look back at, you know, more historical cases where leaders were outstanding, like Ernest Shackleton in, in, in the Antarctic. But it has some value, but quite frankly, he chose all his people by quick interviews and gain their respect even before they set sail and so on. But there are some cases, uh, and I think some of the more distant ones about 20 years ago now, I suppose you can look to the chap who used to run Marks and Spencer's, but it's a long time ago. Uh, Sir Stuart Rose, he understood that he wasn't a very good crisis manager. So as soon as a crisis started to happen, and they had a few, uh, he delegated that to somebody else. While he would do what he's good at, run board meetings, face the camera, and say good things to the press and so on. Very rare to find people like that now. But a lot of companies, of course, certainly in the private sector, the last thing they want to do is to admit they got a crisis. And that's a problem. Oh, and that's an enormous pressure on an individual or a team of people, isn't it? Because, well, frankly, you can only imagine that the wrong types of decisions will come out because of that sort of pressure. Yeah, we are straying, in that, straying into the crisis management sector, but there's a way to look at this and say, you have to make a decision, which box is it in? Is it urgent? Is it important? Or is it in the only box it applies, urgent and important? So you could have something urgent, but actually it isn't important. You know, you have to run out of tea bags or whatever it might be. Or it could be important that the managing director or the chairman is coming down but not until you know, in three days' time or something. Uh, so but when it's urgent and important. And I've run uh, real-time dramas, certainly on 7-7 when we had the bombings in London. We had a exercise running then, and suddenly it became a real one uh, because the bombs had gone off. And we had people there ready to think that way because there was an exercise. And so they, they hadn't got other things to think about other than their own families and so on. And sometimes when you have a crisis where a series of terrorist bombs have gone off, you do think very much with your heart more than your head. Uh, and if you have a, a plan that's written by someone who doesn't understand human foibles, uh, then you know it's, it's written to protect the author rather than to inform the reader. And believe me, that actually happens. You get some plans, for example, in scenarios, rather severe ones, like I say, when a bomb's gone off, tell people to do this, tell them that, guide them here. Well, that tells me at once that person's got no idea about this because when bombs go off, people get covered in dust and they're almost always deaf because the blast has deafened them. 
and yet here we have a plan you might see that tells people and it just assumes they're perfectly were healthy as they were unless they are injured i'm rather interested in a statement or two that you made earlier about how smaller organizations can be more resilient it makes me wonder what the future is like for the larger organizations it sounds like it could be bad for them i think there are strengths and weaknesses both ways on i think a large organization has the capacity to absorb more shocks and still remain buoyant. They have mechanisms to reassure their shareholders and so on and so on. On the downside, large organizations can be rather um, like an organizational dinosaur. They, they can be very, very slow in actually suddenly gearing up to deal with this, to outmaneuver it, to get in front of it, to stop it getting any worse and do the things that we know talking about now are necessary because they're going to be hidebound by a series of financial constraints and controls, and their governance might be so strict, it allows very little wriggle room and not enough agility, but they're big and they can absorb shocks. So what about the smaller organisations? How do you see them differ? Smaller organisations can be very, very quick, self-evidently, but they can't put together big teams. They'd struggle with succession planning. In other words, they wouldn't build into their concept we need people to step up eight hours only, go back, have a sleep, come back again. Uh, they will run it and they could run themselves into the ground. But the speed that a small organization can work is, is enviable. But if they take a hit, certainly as most companies are running with the JIT, that means if you're just in time, you're not very good at just in case. More to the point, there's absolutely no slack in the system to absorb any shocks. Larger companies can absorb them a bit better. So it's not saying one is right or one is wrong. There are different attributes to each. And so many large companies are, in fact, wholly dependent on the SMEs, the small companies, to underpin them on anything from IT to to stationary to a whole load of other issues. And if they fail, they haven't quite worked out that they they might also have a knock-on effect. What can we learn from what you've just said? How vulnerable are we as a society? I think over 80% of the organizations, and something like this in this country, are small organizations. And they're fixated on the bottom line. They're very vulnerable, in fact, but they can mix, they can go quickly. The critical national infrastructure of the United Kingdom, those various layers that are crucial to our very existence, communications, water, transport, and so on, they are just about all underpinned by small, medium enterprises. They are. So we get a huge problem there. And there's no doubt whatsoever that agitators in this country, people abroad in Russia and China in particular, are doing their damnedest to hack into them and make them become very unstable. Those huge organizations, huge actors on a, on a nation state uh, are intent on causing us problems. So we have this series of threats facing us, ill-defined, but we know they're there and we're very vulnerable. But my particular concern is just how much of our critical national infrastructure is underpinned by private sector companies, and they in turn are underpinned by quite small organisations to make them work. Mobilising the mindsets of all these mission-critical SMEs, and using the UK example, that's 80% of the business in this country, is a hell of a task, isn't it? But I just don't think... Um, 
the SME sector is realise how critical it is. There's something that has come up very recently, well, in the last year, actually, I suppose. People are now talking more and more about shared resilience, about a whole of society endeavour. That is one of the key parts of that framework I mentioned a few moments ago. If the government can pull it off and actually really put energy, substance, to calling things, oh yes, it's a whole of society approach, we would have gone further forward than we have done for a long time. It's time now to, to translate those words into real action, real understanding, and feed it into every piece of our industrial architecture in commerce and in government. There have been many attempts around the world over the ages to mobilise entire nations around these sorts of big, hairy goals, if you like. Most, well, it seems to me, generally fail. But surely this is an area, a bit like war, where people can have a common purpose. Yeah, I agree, John. I do agree. Um, my parents' generation, some people, grandparents, even great-great-grandparents, you had a definable enemy, a very definable, um, in, a, in a horrific way. Uh, but now we're facing more pernicious crises, as well as what the Collins Dictionary referred to as perma-crisis. Um, and people often say, look, well, what are the problems? Let's put them in. Is it a cyber attack? Um, is, it, is it pollution? For me, it's much more uh, conceptual. I, I think the problems that we're facing as to why we're not always getting our act together is, is, is a sense of apathy, uh, a sort of corporate complexity can get in the way of things. Being unable to operate where uncertainty prevails, gaps in leadership, insufficient horizon scanning. So I see it that way. I see these much more as a sort of HR issue rather than an inanimate thing because things we can touch and feel and pay for haven't worked. To me, the problems I've seen over the years are a, a sense of denial that this can't get any worse. It can't be happening. Not understanding you live in a world of unness. What you're facing now is unbelievable. It's unprepared for it. It's unnecessary. It's all, all the uns have come crashing in on these things. So once you now put it into a much more human area rather than just this belongs to a series of inanimate processes. For example, a business continuity plan generated entirely by a piece of clever software will just see human foibles as getting in the way rather than saying, no, you've got to build these in. This is how people really work. Mm. And I think some of these things don't always get picked up. But of course, human beings have to stay part of the equation for that to be relevant. Now, you often make a distinction between the private sector and the public sector. And I think if I picked you up correctly, I think you've said that the public sector struggles with resilience. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say so much as struggling. I think it's a different perspective because in the private sector, um, it was rather humorously put to me, it's entirely driven by fear and greed fear that your competitors are going to screw you and get in front and, 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 and you've lost it uh, and greed because you certainly have to make a profit because if you don't you're sunk that doesn't really apply to the um, to the public sector so they can afford to have a different sort of uh, series of way marks we don't want our civil servants our ministers to actually be reckless to take decisions which which uh, don't stand up to later scrutiny 
and the parliamentary process doesn't really encourage people to take positive risks because they're going to be castigated by the opposition. Uh, we do want our civil servants to be thorough, but most civil servants, in fact all civil servants, would rather be thorough and accurate rather than risk being quick and timely, but not always being accurate. That's a big issue for me between the two, relying on accurate data to make a firm decision, run it past lots of people, make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's and everything else, and eventually you come up with a decision, probably too late. Whereas the fast-moving uh, private sector, by comparison, is capable of moving at a slightly different speed, but I don't want to be seen as uh, gratuitously critical of the public sector, because I actually do believe we have the finest civil servants in the world. Ooh. But uh, speed and agility isn't necessarily the hallmark of their decision-making processes. You've mentioned some of the policy work that you've done in the UK and around the world. Can I also ask you to expand on any of that and give us a deeper insight into some of the, the pioneering work that's going on at the moment? Well, I don't want to talk about precise cases, but I, I, I think we, we, we can generalise it. The Government Resilience Framework, which is a public available document, and it was published just before Christmas. Uh, there they talk about something about, and I quote, developing shared understanding of the civil contingencies risks it tells me they've lost something there. Civil contingencies risks is a public sector perspective on risks, civil contingencies. And all governments are duty bound to make sure as best they can that the population is, is protected from civil contingency risks. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, say, the British standard I mentioned, 65000, which talks about thriving in uncertainty. It talks about taking opportunities not just contingency risks, which, which has a sort of feeling of going into the air raid shelter. It's an entirely different language, isn't it? For me, one resonates, one doesn't. Yes, it does. Okay, but, but that's one of those sort of issues. But the other thing that pops up, and one of the reasons I and my colleagues have been helping some other governments, is because they, they really do want to uh, learn as best they can from the public sector. Uh, it isn't just reusing phrases like risk appetite, which doesn't really mean a great deal to the public sector, but it means an awful lot to the private sector. They are talking about partnerships now, the government partnerships between sectors and experts be brought in to the government to deliver and inform the vital work of resilience. Now, I'm quoting from uh, this particular uh, document of talking about the resilience framework. They want to now draw on external expertise, but sometimes you have to overcome that problem that if we are a customer facing, driven by the need for profit, you do not want to declare how your last crisis went or even if, if, even if you had a crisis. But if they're given a sense of surety that that won't be quoted, uh, the government can actually produce an environment where, they, where private sector organizations can speak relatively openly. Because I think we can trust our civil servants to keep secrets. So there's a talk now of a new resilience academy We've never had this. It all comes under uh, Oliver uh, Dowden, MP, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. Uh, but to put into uh, this brave new world of resilience, a new resilience academy, quote, built out of emergency planning colleges, skills and trainings and so on. He is saying, and I, I love this bit, that the, a re 
invigorated national exercise program will test preparedness throughout their whole resilience system. That's a hell of a tall order, but the framework published not long ago doesn't say how it's going to happen. But time is short, isn't it? People have to start talking about how now, don't they? We don't have an unlimited amount of time to really get onto this path. No, we're, we're back to um, the permacrisis. We're going from one to the other. And they don't mm. just sit in a linear line. They happen all at the same time. Mm. We have great fluctuations in the economy. At the same time, we get, we're having a war raging across Europe. But a, perhaps the one thing I take out of this uh, resilience framework um, is the need to recognise a head of resilience for the government. Because in, in the moment, you might think, God, it's unbelievable. It's true. There is nobody responsible for the resilience. So a head of resilience, but he or she, to make it work, has to have uh, pan-government authority uh, and has to, has to have that weight. And I think has to be at, sitting on the cabinet table uh, because we are now denuding, for example, a lot of our military equipment and a whole range of other things. And we are vulnerable for a whole range of reasons. But a head of resilience leading a resilience academy inspired, run and organised by the government with the help of the private sector is a pretty good way to go. We've made progress in terms of the government. We're making progress, I think, in the realisation of organisations that generate wealth and underpin our critical national infrastructure. But we've got some way to go. We have a habit, I think, of always following the drama rather than getting ahead of it and outmanoeuvring it. Are there any other trailblazing groups around the world that that we could follow in this regard? Australia, um, they have published a a great report. Uh, They can move fairly quickly, despite being geographically huge. Uh, They don't have a vast amount of people compared to this country, for example. But they published some very good documents recently. Europe is a bit different. America is very, very different. But I, I have been interested in what the Australians are doing. When I was over there twice speaking with them, I was always impressed with the speed that they can move, but their threat's a little bit different, you know, huge fires, dramatic changes in weather, and so on. But the more we look at it as, and I come back to it, that shared responsibility, then I think we're going to make better progress. We can have a conversation, perhaps even in a year's time. We might even have a head of resilience by then, who knows? Let's hope so. Thanks, Peter. We've learnt a lot today. I suspect this will be a podcast many listen to a few times as they pick out your points for reflection and action. As we saw also in our last episode 23 on the insurance sector's response to risk, we really are living in a state of permacrisis. The four lines of sight Peter describes, foresight, insight, oversight and hindsight, can help us predict and understand this state. They help us make decisions in a crisis and to learn from it afterwards. Situational awareness or horizon scanning can keep us alert to small risks as they come together and become crises. We've got to build that depth of insight, that constant readiness. And when we have a clear view of the data available to us, we can make defensible decisions. Now, that doesn't mean those decisions will always be right. 
Sometimes we just have to act on the best information we have available to us at the time. But with good situational awareness, informed by those tools of foresight, insight, oversight and hindsight, we can make those decisions as we have to and should not face criticism if we get it wrong. That all leads to the sort of agility that Peter has shown to be so important. But there's one really big takeaway I want to highlight here. What Peter is explaining is absolutely vital when the biggest catastrophes happen. But listen to him carefully. He's not just talking about disaster. He's telling us something about how we do business, how politicians and civil servants perform their duties day in and day out. Yes, smaller organisations may be more agile and larger organisations more deeply resourced. Yes, we want our political leaders to be less risk-taking, more careful in their analysis perhaps than are our entrepreneurs. But all of them can use a resilience mindset, not just to bounce back from disaster, but to shape their decision-making using the tools and resources they have available to them. As I always say, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference.